0: If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at Soundbites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Dr.
1: Stacy Bell, and I'll be your guest host for another special edition of Soundbites. As the National Psoriasis Foundation's Chief Scientific and Medical Officer, I've been heavily involved in the foundation's response to the COVID 19 pandemic. Making sure we provide critical information for healthcare providers and individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Given the emergency use, authorization, and release of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for COVID 19, the NPF has received many questions regarding the safety and effectiveness for people with psoriatic disease. Joining me again today to address such questions and to discuss the work of the COVID 19 task force are the chairs of this task force, dermatologist Dr. Joel Gelfand. Professor of Dermatology and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of the Psoriasis and Phototherapy Treatment Center at Penn, and Rheumatologist Dr. Christopher Richland, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Allergy, Immunology, and Rheumatology Division, Co-Director of the Psoriasis Center, and Faculty Member of the Center for Musculoskeletal Research at the University of Rochester Medical Center in New York. Welcome back to SoundBites, Joel and Chris. It's a pleasure to have you back to discuss our recent developments around COVID-19 and to address the many questions our community has around the use of the recent vaccine. So for both of you, let's start a discussion around the development of an mRNA vaccine and the subsequent clinical trials. What does mRNA stand for and how does the vaccine work? Is it considered a live vaccine?
2: Stacey, I'll start on this one. So, mRNA stands for messenger ribonucleic acid or mRNA. And the key to our body in terms of function are our proteins, which can act as enzymes and also can act as supporting structures for our organs and our bones. And in order to make proteins, one has to have DNA and the DNA forms the map that tells us what our protein structure is going to be. And basically, so you have DNA and then you have The development, the copy is made of messenger RNA, which is the the copy that's telling the DNA is telling what the protein should look like. And then that messenger RNA goes into the cytoplasm itself in the nucleus and is uh, transcribed into protein. So with this virus, what they have done, which is actually incredibly clever, is they have taken the spike protein, which is a protein on the virus, which we know stimulates an immune response. And they've taken the mRNA for that spike protein, and they put it in a delivery system so that when the mRNA gets into the patient's system, it is transcribed and translated into the spike protein, which then stimulates an immune response. It is not a live vaccine in the sense that this is not the whole virus. It's only the component of the virus, which cannot in itself cause disease. Joel, you may have some other thoughts on this as well. Chris, uh, it's a great
3: explanation. And The way I think about it is it, it's sort of like a version of Snapchat for the immune system, where when you get the shot in your arm for this vaccine, the messenger RNA is taken up by our cells. The cells make this little piece of protein that's related to the spike protein of the virus. Our immune system sees it. Mounts a response to it, and then the vaccine is gone. The mRNA is gone, but the immune system remembers what it saw. And so that way, when you're exposed to the virus in the future, your immune system is able to rapidly recognize it and protect you from illness. And it is quite an effective vaccine, 95% likelihood of protecting you from uh, getting sick with COVID-19.
1: Joel, both you and Chris have participated in a number of clinical trials. Could you tell us a little bit about who participated in these clinical trials? Did these participants include people with psoriasis and or psoriatic arthritis? And can someone with psoriatic disease still participate in clinical trials?
3: Well, so in these studies, depends which one we're talking about. There's two vaccines. One is made by Pfizer. One is by Moderna. The Pfizer vaccine was people 16 and older. and As a result, it's emergency youth authorizations for people sixteen or older. And the Moderna vaccine was people eighteen or older. So that one is indicating people eighteen or older. So that's an important distinguished thing to know if you have adolescents considering getting vaccinated. Generally speaking, these are pretty healthy people in these trials, but they were very large studies, each study over 30,000 people in them. And so, but people with psoriasis on therapies for the disease, for example, weren't necessarily in these clinical trials, but they certainly are eligible to get these vaccines. They're not live vaccines. We have no reason to believe that they won't work just as well in someone with psoriasis as in someone without psoriasis.
1: So Chris, as one of the world's leading experts in studying the inflammatory responses and pathways for psoriatic disease, could you comment a little bit, does the systemic inflammation caused by psoriasis impact how these vaccines work?
2: I'll answer that in two ways. One is from an immunologic perspective and the other from the view of the clinical trials. So from an immunologic perspective, we treat many patients who have systemic inflammatory diseases. We give them vaccinations and we give them vaccinations for a variety of different infectious diseases such as influenza, pneumococcal pneumonia, hepatitis, and there's no evidence that in these patients that have active inflammation that the immune response is diminished in any way or that the vaccine is more problematic or dangerous for them. In terms of this particular COVID-19, As Joel already mentioned, we did not have patients with psoriatic disease in those trials, so I cannot say from experience, but based on my experience with vaccines in general, I think it will not be a problem if one has active inflammation with psoriatic disease to receive the vaccine.
3: And the CDC has actually mentioned specifically that they've looked at this issue in their vaccine data for the COVID-19 vaccines and has seen no signals at all. Uh, increased inflammation in patients triggering autoimmunity or or aggravating underlying autoimmunity to date.
1: To you both, and Joel, you already touched on this a bit, should people with psoriatic disease take the vaccine even if they're using an immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory medication? Should the medication be stopped prior to taking the COVID-19 vaccine? And really the heart of this question are many of the biologics that are currently being used for psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, are they truly considered immunosuppressive?
3: This is a multiple part question. I'll start by saying first, clearly we think all people with psoriatic disease should get the COVID-19 mRNA-based vaccine as soon as it is available to them. The only people who should not necessarily get this vaccine are individuals who have a known serious allergy to a vaccine component, which is extremely rare to have. So uh, almost everyone who's listening to us, the recommendation would be to get the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as you can. If you're currently taking oral or injectable medications for psoriatic disease, we recommend that you just continue them the vaccine period. And the reason why this is, is first the vaccine is delivered a couple weeks apart. So if you're getting the Pfizer vaccine you get a shot and then it's repeated about three weeks later. If you're getting a Moderna vaccine, you get a shot and then it's repeated four weeks later. And so that's pretty challenging to stop medications for psoriatic disease for that period of time. And I think as Chris alluded to earlier, in looking at our prior experience with vaccines, whether it be flu shots, pneumonia vaccines, things of that nature, we generally don't see any evidence of meaningful impairments in vaccine responses. There's a little bit of evidence that methotrexate May lower some of the responses to things like flu shots, for example. But we don't think it's clinically important enough that we think it's necessary to stop methotrexate during the time period of getting a COVID 19 vaccine.
1: So, Chris, Joel mentioned earlier that these vaccines are about 95% effective. Can you comment on that effectiveness and if you feel these vaccines are safe for patients with psoriatic disease?
2: This effectiveness is astonishing, actually. For influenza vaccines, we see efficacy of around 70%. The only other vaccine I can think of where we're seeing this kind of high response in terms of efficacy is measles, which is around 98%. So a 95% response to the Pfizer vaccine and 94.1% response to the other vaccine is just really incredible. So from efficacy standpoint, really, there's no questions that this is a major advance. From the perspective of safety, so remember, there are over 30,000 individuals in these trials, as mentioned earlier by Joel, and really the safety signals that were unnoted were extremely minor and rare. They did not see anaphylaxis, and so I think that this is a really Remarkable advance in which we have a very safe and effective vaccine that was developed quite rapidly.
1: So, now that we really think about these vaccines being fairly safe and effective, and we're encouraging individuals to get the vaccine, beyond healthcare providers and the frontline workers, who is priority to receive the vaccine? And is there a general distribution plan? Joel, would you comment, please?
3: There's certainly some general guidance put out by the CDC often prioritizing based on age or underlying major health issues that may put people at uniquely higher risk for having bad outcomes from COVID. But this is sort of just guidance, and each state or each municipality may have a variation in how to decide to deploy the vaccine, as well as variation in their vaccine supply and availability. So what I would encourage the listeners to do is to go to your community health website your local county public health website and find out what their local guidance is. Because in some communities, the public are able to get access to the vaccines. For example, in, in uh, Florida, they're making it available for people in the community who are older. In other states, it's not the case. And so you really want to check in with your local community health officials in your own county to see when you'll be able to get access to this vaccine.
1: So like with many topics today, there are uh, data and facts, and there are some myths surrounding some of the information. One of the myths that have been in social media recently are that the vaccines include a microchip that actually will track individuals. Could both of you comment on this for our community?
2: That's that's easy. Um, It's
1: it's not not true. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs>
2: <Right>. Exactly.
3: <laughs> People should know that in, in my medical center at the University of Pennsylvania, everyone who had the opportunity to get vaccinated wanted to be vaccinated as soon as possible. I got my vaccine on December 31st. It was a joyous celebration for all of us who were there because this is the opportunity. One is to have immunity to a potentially lethal virus. So that, that's extremely reassuring to be vaccinated. And then two, this is the path forward towards returning to normal life in our society. I mean, right now, it's a very devastating situation. Hospitals are full of COVID patients. Thousands of people are dying a day nationwide. And the only way to stop this is with the vaccines that are coming
1: out.
2: Great.
1: So you both touched a bit on the CDC recommendations for distribution. And one of the things mentioned in that particular case, is considerations for adults with underlying conditions, those with weakened immune systems or potentially having autoimmune conditions. Can you explain the difference between an autoimmune condition versus immune-mediated disease, such as psoriasis, and does having psoriasis disease place someone at higher priority for receiving the vaccine given the impact of the systemic inflammation?
2: An autoimmune disease, for examples of this would include rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus erythematosus are disorders where patients make antibodies to specific molecules or proteins. And these are recognizable by lab testing, and they have a certain features of the disease that let you know that they have either inflammatory joint disease and skin disease in the case of lupus, as well as involvement of other organs, often like the kidney or the heart. Now in immune mediated diseases such as psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and, and inflammatory bowel disease, there is no such antigen that's been identified. It's more of an overactivation of cytokines such as tumor necrosis factor and IL seventeen, for which we have biologic molecules. Now I think the reason, and I'll interest in Joel's take on this that the Guillain-Barre and Bell's palsy were noted, was largely because those are disorders which have rarely been seen in the setting of vaccination, uh, very rarely, and not not vaccination of, for COVID-19. And so in terms of the impact of having psoriatic disease and whether or not you should receive higher priority, I'm going to let Joel answer that one. Yeah, so I think
3: this is good news, bad news situation. The good news is that there's been many studies published looking at large populations of people with psoriasis, primarily in Italy, actually, where the pandemic was so bad early in the spring of last year. And really what we've learned from that is that people with psoriatic disease do not seem to be more prone to either getting sick with COVID or getting hospitalized for the disease. So that's pretty reassuring information. But because of that, they're also not prioritized to get the COVID vaccine, like people who say have diabetes or hypertension or significant obesity, underlying advanced renal disease. Now, that being said, psoriasis is felt to be more of a systemic disease now, and we know that many of our patients in addition to having signs and symptoms in their skin, their joints, will also have things like diabetes or obesity or kidney problems. And so if those health issues are affecting a person with psoriasis, then that would change the calculation and they may have a chance to get access to the vaccine earlier because of those other underlying health problems.
1: So Joel, I know that two shots are necessary for the COVID-19 vaccine, at least with the current vaccines that recently received EUA. Can you share the need for the second dose? Is it necessary? And how long after the first dose is the second dose given? You touched on the timeframes previously, but if you could comment on that specifically, it would be great.
3: So there's two cu- vaccines currently are approved for use in the United States, and they both work the same way. these things called mRNA vaccines. And which one you get is based on whatever one's available. So for us at my institution, I happened to get Pfizer, but no one really cared. Whatever they had available is what we would get. But whichever one you get is the one you stay with. So if you get the Pfizer vaccine, you get the shot in, in, uh, in the muscle of your shoulder, and then it's repeated three weeks later. If you get the Moderna <clears throat> vaccine, it's repeated four weeks later. And the reason why this is necessary is that COVID is a very difficult illness and you need a robust immune response to protect yourself from it. And we know from the clinical trials that after the first vaccine, a week or two later, you have some protection hard to know exactly for sure how much it is. It's probably 60 to 70% reduction in the risk of getting COVID illness. But we know that second dose gives you much better efficacy, and that gets you to the 95% protective level. And so really, the goal is to have people get the two shot series. And this is not unusual, by the way. Many vaccinations we use against things like hepatitis or, or human papillomavirus or, against shingles require two or three shots even.
1: Excellent. And one other thing I'd like to add in relation to that, there has been talk of trying to only have one dose and have that be distributed, similar to what has been proposed in the United Kingdom. Do you have any thoughts on that approach?
3: Yeah. So so personally, I would not favor that approach for a couple of reasons. The first thing is we do know how to prevent getting COVID-19. And as wearing a mask, and staying six feet away from other people and washing your hands regularly. So we do have a way to reduce the incidence of disease in our community if people will comply with those basic measures. In contrast, we know for sure how well the vaccines work when you get two shots a couple weeks apart. We don't really know for sure how well it works when you only get one shot, and if you get one shot, how long it lasts for. So to me, if people are going to go through the trouble of getting one shot, They might as well get the second shot to make sure they had the full benefit of the vaccine, as opposed to only having partial benefit. Reasonable people can disagree on these issues, but but ultimately these are decisions made by public health officials. And the current thinking in the U.S. is to go with the two-shot strategy and not try to shift gears without good scientific evidence behind it.
1: And what we know to date is the Food and Drug Administration agrees with you as well, trying to optimize the chances of the vaccine. Chris, what side effects are associated with the COVID-19 vaccine?
2: Stacy, first of all, side effects are very rare with these vaccines to date. You can see minor reactions, a small percentage of people, which include pain at the site of the injection site, sometimes a little redness. Some patients experience headache, muscle aches, joint pains, but these are generally mild and short-lived In the large Pfizer study, which had over 43,000 patients, they did not see anaphylaxis. Now, since the vaccine has been released, there have been reported cases of anaphylaxis. And so this is something that the press has really picked up on, even though it's extremely unusual. And right now, I think that what the recommendations are is if patients are known to have a history of anaphylaxis, in particular something called PEG or polyethylene glycol or, or polysorbates, which are often used in vaccines to help boost the response and deliver the messenger RNA to the cells, if they should at least speak with their allergist first, and if they do get the vaccination, they should wait 30 minutes of 15 minutes before leaving the area. So overall, I think it's, again, remarkable, as I talked about the efficacy, the safety as well is, is pretty incredible.
3: I just wanna put some context on this for our listeners. As Chris mentioned, in these large trials where tens of thousands of people were were vaccinated to see how well it worked, you were more likely to get hit by lightning, literally this one patient in the trial get hit by lightning uh, than you were to have anaphylaxis. In the studies after the vaccines have been approved, we think the rates probably about one in 100,000 people are having anaphylaxis, which is obviously extremely rare. And so it's, it's highly unlikely that any of our listeners will experience this. The most likely thing that you'll experience is you're or maybe sore for a day or two, Some people may have some systemic symptoms, may feel a little feverish or a little fatigued. Those symptoms are pretty mild and resolved within a day or two and are unlikely to affect your day-to-day activities. In terms of serious side effects, the rate of serious side effects were very similar, actually identical, in those getting the vaccine compared to those getting placebo. The biggest difference is that those who got the vaccine had a dramatically reduced risk of getting COVID illness. And essentially, no risk of getting hospitalized. In both of the Pfizer-Moderna trials, no one was hospitalized for COVID illness who received the active vaccine. And that's pretty remarkable if you think about that.
1: As you mentioned, such a severe allergic reaction is extremely rare. But if that does happen following the first dose, should the individual take the second dose?
3: Yeah, my guess is that for most people in that circumstance, they would not get the second, for the second dose. But that's, again, an extremely unusual circumstance to occur.
2: So what we're doing at our medical center is those patients would be referred to an allergist or go to their allergist if they had one and share decision-making on what should be the next steps. I think it's going to be different for every patient depending on the nature of the reaction that they had and their past history of allergic responses.
1: So, Chris, if someone has had COVID-19, should they receive the vaccine eventually, or should they be considered immune to the disease?
2: There's evidence that once a patient has COVID-19, that they do develop an immune response. The challenge that we have is we don't know how long that immune response lasts. We don't have good data yet. So, generally, what's now recommended is that if a patient has a COVID-19 infection, they should wait 12 weeks before having the first shot of the vaccine and of course three to four weeks later depending on which vaccine they actually receive and so the idea here is that if that response does wane after three months that vaccine will provide a a booster immunologic kick that will allow them now to have a protection i think it's also important to point out that we don't really know how long the vaccine-induced immune response is going to last either it's something that we're going to have to follow carefully and adjust if we need to as time goes on.
1: Joel, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have both recently received the emergency use authorization um, and have begun to be distributed. But what are the key differences between these two vaccines and what is the difference between an emergency use authorization and a formal approval?
3: The vaccines themselves work very similarly have nearly identical efficacy in terms of preventing COVID-19 illness, seem to have very similar safety profiles. The major differences are are how they're stored. The Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at minus 80 degrees Celsius. It requires a special type of freezer, whereas the Moderna vaccine is stored at minus 20 Celsius, which is a more standard type of commercially available freezer. And so for that reason, in a lot of communities, it'll be easier to get the Moderna vaccine than the Pfizer vaccine because you don't need a specialized freezer for it. And then the major difference is really the duration between the shots. For Pfizer, it's three weeks. And for Moderna, it is four weeks apart. And of course, when you go to get your vaccine, that's really a time probably when they'll tell you which one you're getting. And then they'll give you a little card and give you an appointment so you know when you're supposed to come back for your second shot. Now, the difference between an EUA and a full approval is that the FDA has regulatory guidance about the type of data it likes to see when it's giving a full authorization for a vaccine. And so usually we follow people for at least a year after a vaccine to look for any additional issues that may occur with longer term follow-up. That's a pretty conservative view. And in the setting of developing a vaccine for non-life-threatening epidemic illness, we have time to wait a year and, and look if there's anything unusual occurring. The reality is, in the history of vaccine safety, virtually all side effects occur immediately, usually in the first week or two of getting the vaccine. You don't really see uh, delayed reactions, delayed side effects that would occur four or five or six or seven months after receiving an immunization. And so really, it's, it's a matter of the framework in which the FDA generally evaluates vaccines. In my opinion, in the current pandemic, the EUA is completely reasonable. And As Ari mentioned, me and my colleagues wound up as soon as we possibly could to get the vaccine.
1: So as we've all watched with dismay and horror as the COVID-19 cases continue to rise, We hear from our colleagues the challenges and the struggles they're facing in their communities and the heartbreak of losing patients. Are there other vaccines in the pipeline to help meet this demand as the cases rise?
2: So, Stacey, there's three other strategies that are being employed uh, in terms of other vaccines. So one approach is to grow the spike protein in large quantities in the laboratory. This is the protein, not the mRNA, so it's a whole different strategy and then to envelop that spike protein, an immunologic compound that'll drive the immune response. So basically, you're taking your protein, you're attaching, which is the spike protein, and then you're attaching a molecule that'll boost the immune response, and you're injecting that protein directly into the patient. This is different than the mRNA, where you're injecting the mRNA, and then the mRNA is being translated into the spike protein. So a bit of a different approach, and that's one strategy. Another strategy is to envelop the spike protein in an adenovirus. So these adenoviruses are a virus like COVID-19, but they are different as they're not pathogenic. They don't cause disease, but they can replicate. So you inject this adenovirus, which contains a spike protein, it replicates, and the spike protein is now exposed to the immune system, and it stimulates an immune response. Those are currently in trials with AstraZeneca-Oxford and Johnson & Johnson. The third strategy, which I really don't know much about, Joel, they have greater insight or knowledge about it, and that is using a very old approach, which is inactivating the COVID-19 vaccine, so a so-called, quote, killed vaccine. I know that there are other countries, including in the Orient, that are taking this approach, although I'm not aware of any data letting us know about safety and efficacy. Really, I think what
3: the public should know is at least in the United States, my think would be that the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, that one's probably the closest to being evaluated for potentially approval, but they need some more data in our system that has been approved in the United Kingdom. But there's a lot more uncertainty about how well that vaccine works and what dosing regimen you should get. Its biggest advantage from a public health point of view is that it doesn't need a deep freeze. It can be refrigerated, actually. So it's even easier to administer compared to, say, the Moderna vaccine. But currently, it seems like the most effective vaccines we have are the ones that are available to us in the U.S., the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine.
1: Do you have any final comments you'd like to add to today's discussion about the vaccines?
3: This is a time for optimism. We think about that this pandemic first became known to the scientific community In the very end of 2019, and a year later, we were already vaccinating our frontline healthcare workers with a very highly effective vaccine, is just a medical scientific, not a miracle, because it's been decades of hard work, but it feels like a miracle. And so this is, to me... What patients need to think about is how do you protect yourself for now? Wear a mask, maintain your distance, wash your hands, and then have a plan to get the vaccine as soon as you can. Be in touch with your local health officials and see when your turn is going to be available.
2: I completely agree with what Joel just said. The other exciting frontier here is that These are vaccines which can be developed rapidly, and they will likely be used to protect against other disorders, other infectious disorders, and even perhaps immune-mediated disorders. So this is incredibly an exciting time. But it's also a time to remember that we need to continue to follow the CDC guidelines, which includes wearing face coverings and washing our hands and keeping social distance and avoiding the restaurants in large crowds and this is going to be present for uh, several weeks if not months even with a vaccine coming on board because estimates are showing there was a recent paper on this in the new england journal of medicine that only about 60 percent of people that they've interviewed are at this point in time willing to take the vaccine hopefully with education and Patients seeing how others are doing with the vaccine will change and increase the number of individuals who will get vaccinated. But this is a critical element that we need to be aware of, and we need to convince our family and loved ones and friends that it's really essential that they get this vaccine.
3: The vaccine works the best when we have control of this pandemic. Uh, What we don't want to do as a society is allow a novel pathogen to run wild and do whatever it wants to do, that that's no way to fight a battle or fight a war for those who use that sort of analogy We, we need to uh, stamp this thing out before it finds other ways of causing harm to people, so the sooner people get vaccinated, the sooner we can move back towards a normal life Agreed.
1: I fully agree with you both, and i I know this is something that we are encouraging with our community as well. I also agree that I never thought in my lifetime I would see such a scientific breakthrough, but I think more importantly, the scientific collaboration that's resulted in these outcomes. That collaboration also is reflected in our NPF COVID-19 Task Force. And I thank you both for leading that effort and providing all of this information and resources to our community. I would encourage everyone to also visit psoriasis.org and search for our COVID-19 Resource Center for further information. Thank you once again, Chris and Joel, for your efforts in providing the latest information about COVID-19 vaccines and what's to come in the future. The work and guidance you give to the National Psoriasis Foundation's COVID-19 task force is so critical to our providers and patients with psoriatic disease during this unprecedented time of the pandemic. For our listeners, I encourage you to review the updates to our COVID-19 guidance statements along with other resources available at the COVID-19 Resource Center on the NPF website at psoriasis.org and search for the COVID-19 Resource Center. I also encourage you to continue to send your questions to education at psoriasis.org, which like today, form the basis for this podcast. As this pandemic evolves, the NPF COVID-19 Task Force will continue to review data, questions, and respond with updates as needed.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Soundbites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage.